Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good in general, and I'm very, very good in particular, and looking forward to our conversation today with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. Yeah, we're so excited to be doing this today. We sometimes get requests from listeners to do episodes that are focused on different topics or even approaches to therapy. One of the most requested of these is acceptance and commitment therapy, commonly known as ACT. And today, as you said, we have the absolute pleasure of talking with the originator of ACT, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. Before we get into today's conversation with Dr. Hayes, just a quick reminder about a couple of things. First of all, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, I have a new YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Forrest Hansen, and I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. I just posted a new video to the channel that I'm really happy with, and I hope that you take the time to check it out. Okay, so on to our conversation with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. So Dr. Hayes is the Nevada Foundation Professor in the Behavior Analysis Program at the Department of Psychology of the University of Nevada. He coined the term clinical behavior analysis and is the developer of relational frame theory, a theory of human language and higher cognition. He extended it to create ACT, or Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, And he's been the president of a number of organizations, including the American Psychological Association's Division on Behavior Analysis, the American Association of Applied and Preventative Psychology, and the Association for Advancement of Behavior Therapy. He's also authored a unbelievable 44 books, including A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters, which is an essential guide to ACT. He's also authored nearly 600 scientific articles. His research has been cited almost 100,000 times, making him one of the most influential researchers in the field today. So, Steve, it's amazing to have you here with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's really, really great to be here with him. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And this has just been a much requested topic, and so I'm glad that we're able to do this with you. So for people who might not be familiar, I'd love to kind of ground the conversation with a quick intro to ACT for people who haven't done it or aren't as aware of what it is, and there's no better person to get that from than you. So what is ACT? How does it work? And what does it kind of help people with? Well, ACT is a um, evidence-based approach to psychological change. It isn't just in psychotherapy. It's used in business industry and sports and Mm -hmm. dealing with uh, physical health problems of all kinds, diet, exercise, and so forth. But I think what's important about ACT because it has deep resonance with lots of different things that are out there, is that in that 40-year journey, we've tried to distill the kinds of processes that either liberate people or put them into kind of life cul-de-sacs down to a very small set. We call it psychological flexibility. There's three or 4,000 studies sitting on top of that work. And then ACT is just the applied wing of being able to use whatever methods. I don't care if they're invented inside the ACT community or not, I'm happy to beg, borrow, and steal Mm. of anything that will move (laughs) these six psychological flexibility processes. There are six that are three that are one. The six are being more emotionally open without clinging, but also without avoidance, to be more cognitively flexible. Notice what you're thinking. Take what's useful. Leave the rest. 
to be able to bring your attention into the present moment in a way that's flexible, fluid, and voluntary from this sort of witnessing, noticing, transcendent, spiritual mm. sense mm. of self, pure awareness, period, end of story, not even of anything, but just the hereness and fromness and nowness of consciousness itself. And then to be able to move those attentional processes towards what brings meaning and purpose into your life by choice. What is the kind of person you want to be? What kind of qualities do you want to reveal in your life moments? And can you build habits around it? Those are six things. You want to make it three, being more open, aware, and actively engaged. You want to make it one, being more psychologically flexible. And it turns out that is the smallest set that does the most things, the smallest set that does the most things in the most areas than any similar set of processes known in behavioral science. And, you know, you can say that after 40 years of work, you get to say <laughs> grand statements like that. So I really, what I care about most is putting tools that people use in their life to help foster a more psychologically flexible way of being in the world. I'm not really not so much interested in act qua act, but I am very interested in empowering people to live more flexible and values-based lives. Fantastic. I'm really struck by your one ring to rule them all psychological <laughs> flexibility. <laughs> and, it's funny you'd say that because I'm actually considering that as a title for an article right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I can walk through why and I've got some co-authors on it you would not expect. Tolkien himself? Oh, wait, no. <laughs> Bring anyway. it back. Gandalf, just come back. I love that trilogy. I've read it multiple times. Oh, that's so sweet. I actually read it to Forrest uh, when yes. he was a young pumpkin. It was one of my formative experiences growing up. And by the way, maybe we can get back to it because what is that story a story of? It's a story of psychological flexibility of why me? I don't, I'm not the person who can do this. Ah, ah yeah, and into then the you open up to you have all these difficult feelings. I'm not able to it, et cetera. And the difficult feelings, I'm, I'm afraid. And then you find your allies and you find your different sense of self and you come into that present moment and there's a really important value there. It's really important and you're going to pursue it and pursue it and pursue it. And then you do. And, you know, all the great stories have that same arc mm -hmm. because that's the human story of how do we get out of our own way and empower ourselves to be more fully who we are. And I think that's why we love those stories. Mm. That's awesome. Well, I'm just thinking immediately of Sauron, who could not help but be evil. He had no flexibility whatsoever. And even Boromir, Boromir could not, in Piagetian terms, he could not accommodate his frames of reference to the hobbits and to Aragorn. He just couldn't accept that. You know, he could recognize they were there. But he couldn't shift his frame. We've we've got on a on a diversion I did not expect here, but you're totally right. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is great. Okay, so to the to the A of act in particular, for people to be flexible, one of the things you really have emphasized is the deep, deep, deep importance in shifting into a mode of accepting of their own experiences. Yes. Accepting their own experience rather than being entirely identified with it and hijacked by it or locked in a struggle with it, a war with it, that glues them to that experience which they're resisting. And I wonder if you could talk more about the acceptance aspect. Yeah, and it's a word that's created problems for us. And of course, mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. populations, you use that person with chronic pain, they've had it thrown at them by 
folks are just tired of hearing about their pain and you can understand that too. And you just have to accept it. You know, so what we're talking about here is not tolerance, resignation. If you try to measure that, you'll find it doesn't relate to health outcomes well at all. We're not talking about stoicism and its cartoon version. We're not talking about, you know, just get over it. What we're talking about is in the original meaning of the word in Latin, which meant to receive as if to receive a gift. And it's still in English, barely there. Mm. When you have something precious that you give to somebody and you ask them, here, will you accept this? Why do you do that? Mm. Because you're asking them to willingly take the gift, not just for it to be given to them. You're asking them to reach and take in willingly. You want to see that. It's that precious. And our history is like that. Our history can contain horrifically painful things, but such hard-earned wisdom is inside that pain. And it includes the sweet things, too, that are transient and that will go away. My son got his black belt a couple days ago, Hmm. and he was born with a muscle disorder, and they told us that he would never be able to do anything physical. And watching this amazing journey that he's been on Mm. and then going back in the right for the black belt ceremony of looking at some of those baby pictures and some of those sweet moments, but also those times when he was lacking so much confidence. And my point being, life doesn't come as sugar soup. And we wouldn't want it if it did, really. Mm -hmm. Our mind says yes. Our heart would say no. It comes as this rich soup of sweet and sad, of life and death, of joy and sadness. And so could we receive the gift that's offered of our own history that will allow us to plant our feet firmly in the dirt, humbly, you know, the word for humus is from the same root, and cast our eyes forward towards the kind of life we really want to live. And that's what that's what that? acceptance is about. Yeah. How do you help people with the pain? I mean, what do you do when your feelings hurt and the holding them at arm's length is a is a way to cope, maybe acquired in childhood. It's 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 a way to manage to titrate the pain. And but to really accept the feelings would open the door to a lot of pain. The classic way to act in is through what we call creative hopelessness which is to look at the cost of doing otherwise. Hmm. Because what your mind tells you is if you hold your hand out, as you just did, Rick, and you say no, that you'll get less. No, you don't. You get more. But it comes now in a dirty form that no longer conveys an important message, that doesn't lift you up, but pushes you down, in which your life gets to start when you somehow find the Mr. Clean Magic Eraser or the secret delete button that can eliminate your own history. And it's such a hostile, self-attacking mode that you feel the weight of it immediately. There's this desperate attempt to start from where you aren't instead of learning how to start from where you are. Mm. And so what we like walking people into without judgment is to just look with eyes wide at your own experience. What does it tell you? How is that working for you? Mm -hmm. Is that working? And what people will come to a therapist with and with the experience of it not having worked, feeling as though that means there's something additionally wrong with them, Hmm. that they can't make this agenda work. Yeah. And then with even more desperation, 
whether it's drugs or more radical forms of withdrawal or sexual connections without meaning or whatever the thing is, even more desperately grasping at the attempt to be somebody other than the person who has your history. And so I like starting the way my own journey started, perhaps, of hitting bottom of enough is enough. No more of this. No more of what that little Wizard of Oz voice says in your head. If you just really work hard to avoid, this time it's going to work. No, it's not. Mm. And how much being up does life have to do of you before you're willing to be humbled by it and say, maybe the way forward is 180 degrees in a different direction. And when you make that move out of desperation, most people make it out of desperation, but you see something happen. Now, I'm a panic disordered person in recovery. If you look at the natural history of panic, almost everybody has experienced this. They get so fed up. They're so exhausted. They've struggled so hard. They sort of go, kill me if you're gonna, <laughs> to their own emotions, and the fog lifts. Yeah. And when you do that, when you find that freedom of being yourself, acceptance can happen. So uh, my harsh way in maybe is uh, to look at pain and to look at how your struggle against it hasn't given you what it promises. Totally. I mean, it sounds like so much of what you're speaking to is just clear seeing and beginning with clear seeing. And what kind of struck me about your introduction that you gave to ACT there, Steve, was a moment where you dropped into a fairly contemplative space of talking about mindfulness and pure awareness and opening into allness and all of that. And I know that from your background, you grew up during the 60s and you had a real interest in Eastern traditions and spirituality. And I just wonder if that had an influence, of course, many years later on the creation of ACT and maybe your perspective on some of these techniques and approaches. It did, but in a general way, and I wasn't any more a Buddhist than any other hippie. Um, you know, <laughs> but I sat on Hippie Hill and adjusted more things than I should. And of course, I mm. read Suzuki and Watts and so forth. And I lived on a Hindu-influenced commune. And mm. But I was also raised by Jesuits, you know, and uh, you want some interesting Christian folks. They're pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And the Christian mystics were important to me and, and the Sufis were as well. And so, you know, I grew up in a time where Western culture was trying to look at, do we really want to have what, you know, the man in the gray flannel suit gave us? What the, you know, I watched my alcoholic dad try to sell aluminum and, uh, and literally, you know, the kinds of things that you see in those sitcoms of the 50s and so forth, very tight. Yeah, totally. Very human. I mean, trying to create after the Second World War a kind of a different vision, but wound so tight and the hippies sort of, you know, did in their own crazy <laughs> way some loosening of that. But uh, one reason I'm a little hesitant about focusing just on any of the Eastern traditions is that, A, I wasn't well-trained in it. B, hmm. all of the mystical traditions, all of the religious traditions, all of the wisdom traditions have ways of reining in excessive, literal, analytic, judgmental language. You know, whether it's living in silence, saying a rosary, dancing, chanting, koans, meditation. There's a thousand different ways in to what happens when this evolutionarily recent adaptation that you and I are doing right now that has mm. harnessed 
brain processes that are a thousand times older to our detriment. And so how can we manage this magnificent invention of language on the one hand that gave us the ability to talk across how many miles right now and that will put any misery in the world in front of your children within minutes, that will put constant flow of judgment and comparison, that will show you the gold-plated doorknobs of billionaires, and that will give you an easy escape into avoidance and think mm -hmm. that you know, the, the people's Instagram posts reflect the kind of life that they live. And you look at your own insides and you find that it's wanting. You know that we've put a challenge in the modern world for people like you at your age, Forrest. Yeah. And what do we see as a result? You know, orders of magnitude, more suffering. So mm. we better learn how to rein that in. And I want Western science that's respectful of our wisdom traditions to really dig down to the elements and processes that can liberate human beings. And that's kind of, that takes you into some different places than what was there before. But we might find things that can do in 30 seconds, a tiny little bit of what you might get in a 10 day silent retreat. And some of those are in some of these act methods and they don't look like anything that, you know, a monk probably would say to do, but it's not out of disrespect. It's out of wanting to use every tool in the book we've got to try to create modern minds for the modern world. Steve, in your own personal practice, are there important things that you do for yourself that are outside the frame of ACT? Well, they're inside the frame of processes that matter. I mean, I have values triggers around me, for example, but most people do. I see you wearing a ring. Why are you wearing it? You're referring to a values trigger, a mark of commitment to my wife. And frankly, it's a signal to others that I'm taken. <laughs> it simplifies my life in good ways. It has a social function. If you're like me, I take it off at night and I put it on in the morning. When I put it on, I try to remember what it's about. Yeah. Mm. You know, and I sometimes deliberately will hold on to it for a moment. And you're calling that a values trigger as an example. I just guess a name for it, but it, you know, it's a sign of something bigger. Mm -hmm. And it's an example of a thousand things we do that help us to come into the present moment, mm -hmm. to do that as a whole human being, to focus on what's important, and to try to organize our, our moments around that. Mm -hmm. I put cues in my environment to take just a moment to back out of the chatter and show up into what's present inside and out. There's a, a thing that still echoes forward. It's in classic act books. If taking the keys to your car, and when you touch the keys, to think of, okay, part of the key to being here is take a moment just to check in with my own <laughs> sense of awareness of this present yeah. moment. Well, it hangs out. It has that little word thing, the key. And so those tiny little check-ins, I think, can help life have a kind of a quality, you might say, of kind of a walking meditation of including a check-in to a sense of self that you can visit in contemplative practice, but is of importance because it informs this moment and then this moment. You know, I, I want it, that skill to be here with me right now as I talk to you. So if I'm tempted to climb into a clown suit and perform and try to show how great act is or how it's different than other things, and, <laughs> and, and I invented mm -hmm. it. I mean, come on, dude. 
You're going to die. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? I think we need help and guide and practice coming into the present moment. Focus on what's important. Get your feet moving. And I think our wisdom traditions that we're an awesome start. Our psychotherapies are an awesome piece. But, you know, I want to put it into the life of the FedEx driver. When you talk about acceptance, another A came to me, including related to flexibility, which is autonomy. And so much of what your work seems to be about is helping people develop a greater autonomy with regard to their internal world. Yeah. So they're not trapped either fleeing what they're experiencing or being hijacked by it or fighting with it. And also greater autonomy in their external world in terms of identifying their values and naming them and foregrounding their values and then sorting out, okay, if it's really a value, are you committed to it? <laughs> you know, are you going to really walk that talk? And at least I've seen a lot in the culture and maybe in general, people are often afraid of being really autonomous and really exercising agency, maybe in particular in the framework of important relationships, intimate relationships, family relationships. Forrest and I explored in our book the balance of autonomy and intimacy, for example, and how they feed each other and support each other. So what what do you think is difficult for people about exercising autonomy? So especially, can I say, tricky for me, because you're talking, you're looking at a behavior analyst, right? You're looking at a person yeah. who's out of this <laughs> deterministic uh, wing of psychology. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't changed that. I still believe in that. But I have the great benefit of holding to an aontological perspective. I think language is just a tool. Mm. It never captures the whole of anything. Evolutionists talk about, you don't really see the snake. You just see whatever you kind of Mm -hmm. uh, can do to keep from being bitten by whatever that is. You know, it's really more like the matrix than it is like some sort of crude correspondence with reality. Well, so because of that, I can use language in different ways. And sometimes the language of determinism is really useful to me as a scientist, for example. Very often, to me as an individual, it's not so useful. And autonomy (laughs) is a good way of talking about our capacity for choice in the context of an unbelievable space unbelievably complex space in which almost anything is possible. Let me explain just briefly why, and then I'll loop back. It's a little geeky, but can I do a little bit of geek? Please, yeah. The theory that's underneath that called relational frame theory says that cognition works by relations, more like family relations than it does by association or similarity. So it's not that the word occurred at the same time or in the same place, or it's not because things are physically similar. It's not the chalk on one hand rubbed on the other. The point of where I was going with is this. If you had just eight events with eight verbal relations to eight symbols, and you could relate all symbols to all symbols, all relations to all relations, and all events to all events, you have 4,000 things with eight things. How many things are in your head that you could relate one to the other? Well, here's the problem. Any two things, verbs, nouns, doesn't matter, any relation, you can always come up with an answer. If eight things lead to 4,000, how many things are in your head? How many relations are possible? Better than, faster than, opposite to, part of, whole, prettier than, you know, you name it. You have more possibilities in your head and your brain with things you already know than there are molecules in the universe. 
So in what sense is it determined? I mean, probabilistically, yes, sitting on Mount Olympus doing my science work, but from the inside out, it's much closer to saying something that lands in what's real, to say you have free choice, you can determine what your life is about, and I want to know, I want to hear from you, what's of importance to you. And that autonomy measure that's in self-determination theory around the values issues. I mean, you can see it with little kids wanting to do it their way. You don't have to be but tiny neonate before you're exerting autonomy. And mm-hmm. with our capacity for human thought, you now are in a space where almost infinite possibilities are there. So it's uh, a long, geeky way of saying Yes, I'm a determinist, except I think I have free choice, except I don't really believe any of that. Yeah. But let's use language the way we can to help. And I think when people sometimes are denying their own autonomy, what they really mean is, I don't like feeling what I feel when I think that I've made a mistake. Well, let's deal with that by emotional openness. Let's deal with that by cognitive flexibility. Let's not make it into a right and wrong thing. Let's instead work on empowerment. How can I use my full capabilities to move my life in a direction that I really want? That's a worthy journey. One of the things that struck me in my own history, you know, I started early 70s, really. Human potential movement, LA, all kinds of wild stuff. Got into meditation, bounced around through the 70s, and then finally went to graduate school. And the last 40 or so years, pretty pretty centered in clinical psychology with a, I'd say a major wing in contemplative practice. And along that long way, it has really struck me that people involved in the change business, that was, you said that in your first sentence, pretty much, what is ACT about? And in the process of change, change happens at, as you know very well, at what Vygotsky called the zone of proximal development, you know, the growing edge uh, and so forth. And one thing that's been really striking to me is how often People can have experiences that are in their growing edge. They open to a new way of being, a new insight about themselves, a new relationship to their experience, new skills, new intentions, new motivations, but they don't stabilize. You know, after they walk out of the therapist's office, an hour later, a day later, same old, same old, back to baseline, especially, especially for the third to half or so of the people in intervention studies of one kind or another, they don't stabilize any kind of lasting gain, even if there's a main effect because of the kind of high, high achievers, if you will, in terms of achieving lasting change. And so I wondered what happens within ACT implicitly and to what extent do you teach people things explicitly that they can do inside their own minds that help to increase the conversion in a nutshell from states to traits at that growing edge for lasting change? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, really. And you know, we're evolving systems and variation selection and retention. Retention is an important part. If you, if you can't retain it, it doesn't matter very much. The things that I know to do are practice matters, repetition matters, mm. pattern matters. It needs to fit into larger and larger patterns. Purpose matters. And I think also having a little bit of a sense, a little peg, a little hook to hang in the wall of what did you just do that worked? And so principles matter. And part of what psychological flexibility can do is it can give you the six things that do the 80%. And there's a 
a hundred other things that would be important, but these six do a lot. But there's lots of things that are outside of just those six I've mentioned. But being able to know what the principles are, what the processes are, what the sequence is, and have a name for it allows us to generalize, not with certainty. And I'm humbled by the fact that I've had many experiences in my life. The one I often use is tinnitus because, you know, I'm an old punk rocker and, uh, (laughs) you know, you don't want to stand in front of 50 foot tall speakers kicking out 170 decibel music uh, because when you're 72, which I am, what you hear is ringing in your ears 24-7, very loudly. Mm-hmm. And when it first started coming on about 10 years ago, I'm going, what's going on? How could I, oh my God. And I'm going to the audiologist and he's putting noise machines in the hallway because habituation will do it, yeah, which is a very, the randomized trial show with tiny effect sizes. It's just very sad. But, you know, it actually leads to suicidality and stuff. People kill themselves yeah. over ringing yeah, in their ears. Totally. Luck. Yeah. So a thought shows up in my head of, I should just kill myself. Then the noise will go away. And then the next thought comes, uh, dude, that's a suicidal thought. Uh, maybe you should apply <laughs> your life's work to this. <laughs> it took me three years. I went out for a walk. I came back. I was 50% better within seven days, 100% better. We've now done measures, randomized trials. We know that we can replicate it in others. We can teach people acceptance, diffusion skills. Does the ringing stop? No. Any more than it does with chronic pain patients or with a trauma history. There's no delete button in the nervous system that's healthy. So, you know, short of a lobotomy or brain injury or something, you know, that's not going away. So what are you going to do when nothing you do will do? Hmm. Well, it turns out there's something transformational you can do. And knowing what those processes are, you know, I get letters from people saying, you know, I, I have tinnitus and how can I do it in two days? And I say, well, you probably can't. I was doing these things for 30 years when that happened. And Steve, I just have to interrupt. The it is not removing what the Buddha would call metaphorically the first start of the intense ringing in your ears, the, yeah. the it is removing the suffering, the exactly. reactivity related to that first start. Okay, good. Pain is not optional. Suffering is. Mm, yeah. And it, it's in the word, you know, that fur part is from fairy, it's to carry, and, and suff part and suffering is up and under. It has that metaphor. If you got up under your history and you're carrying it like a heavy burden, uh, dude, put it yeah. down. Yeah. You don't have to carry that. Putting it down doesn't mean get rid of it. It's going to follow you. And, you know, I haven't heard the ringing in my ears for a week. It's ringing like mm-hmm. crazy now. Because mm-hmm. you're bringing attention to yeah, it. Bring it yeah, bringing it into attention. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. can't make me care. I don't care. I'm not going to carry that burden. I am not going to pick up that weight. I'm not doing it. And so coming back to your really deep question, because it's the question, isn't it? Yeah. And where, where people know, hey, can I give an example? I use it often, excuse me for yeah. that. But I tell people to show me with their body, them at their best, with an issue they're struggling with. Show me with their body, them at their worst. We've taken pictures around the world, whether you're wearing a burqa or whether you're not wearing a loincloth, whether or not you're in Canada or the U.S., it's all the same. You at your worst, your head comes down, your eyes close, you buckle at the waist, you bring your arms and hands in, you bring your knees towards your chest, you go into a defensive like at your worst. That's yep. you at your yeah. worst. You at your best. Your head comes up, your eyes open, your arms and hands go out, your arms may extend out, you might stand up. Well, how did you know to do that? Because you know that open, aware, and actively engaged is helpful. And you mm-hmm. know that turned inward 
avoiding, not seeing, not connecting, defending, flopping, failing is not helpful. Well, why don't you always just do what's helpful? Because you got this organ between your ears that's constantly telling you to do the wrong thing. And so I like having a few principles so I can put a few words, just a few, in the word machine. It's just little reminders, flashlights into the darkness, that what if this is a moment we're opening up, we're stepping back from the chatter, when coming into the present moment, when allocating your attention voluntarily from this more spiritual, witnessing, noticing sense of self, and focusing on what's important and putting your feet behind that. What if this is a moment like that? And it almost always is. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. 
to build on this, I said before we started recording that I really, I do liken you to people like Carl Rogers and Virginia Satir in the history of the field. And so thinking of Satir, who is a family therapist and in that centered in that way of looking at things in which people are located, situated socially. All right. So now let's say a person proceeds through acceptance and commitment and their, their change is mobilizing, they're moving, but then they bump into their family system, their work environment, mm -hmm. they bump into societal forms of oppression. If you step out of that kind of role that's designated for you, whatever, the system pushes back. What kind of skills and resources do you have in your own toolkit, if you will, whether it's formalized as act or not, to help people deal with the pushback that comes at them related to, let's presume, their own positive changes. Big time. And this is a focus. When the act first hit, you know, it got this very strongly, you know, it hit because it was written up in time around get out of your mind into your life. And the initial comments were, you're just teaching people who are oppressed to accept their situation. Mm, right, right. Well, mm -hmm. I had the wonderful experience of, a, of one of our first randomized trials. We did three, and then we went dark for 16 years where we worked out the measure of the model, the philosophy of science and all that, the basic theory. Then we came back with our randomized trials. Well, one of the first ones when we came back was showing that in call centers, when you're working with people in banks who are living really difficult lives and we have a, a control condition of previously validated behavior therapy to empower workers to change the stressors in their environment, or we do an ACT protocol. And what happened, not at post, but at follow-up, the people in the ACT group were demanding as many changes as in the one of the validated, you got to change your environment group. Hmm. Why? Because what kept them small was their own emotions, their own fears, their own chatter. Oh, God, if I raise that issue, you know, uh, who I need, somebody else should do it. Maybe I'll be criticized. Maybe I won't like it. Maybe I'll be fired. Maybe I'll lose my job. And so there's a whole series of studies now on act and oppression and on bigotry and on prejudice, on stigma, how it happens, why it keeps going, how to challenge it, how to change it. Mm. And so it's not an easy solution, but it's part of the solution to reduce the impact of enacted stigma on you, ACT methods, absolutely helpful, but also to empower people to step into the kind of communitarian transformational changes that we need to make to really do something about what's in our head and hearts forever. I mean, those prejudiced thoughts will rumble around in your head forever. I mean, you carrying gender bias, you're carrying racial bias, of course you are, but what can you do about it? Is it unregulated bias? That's the key question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to need to do a few things. Like one of the things, and I see it in the family therapists or in the EFT folks, the Sue Johnsons and mm -hmm. of the world and so forth. Take, for example, these things of acceptance, of noticing your thoughts. Of the, well, extend those out. Acceptance turns into compassion. If I'm going to be open to my emotions, I have to care about helping you deal with yours. Mm. Diffusion, noticing my thoughts, turns into openness to communication. What do you think? Can I listen to you? What are your thoughts about this? Consciousness turns into connection. Do I really take the time to look in the eyes of the person I'm talking to, to get that there's a conscious person there with their history and their reacting? My point being here that you can take these things that look individualistic, but when you dig down to the processes, you realize they have social extensions. Yeah, I, I do want to paint kind of a specific 
sort of case study for you, if that's yeah. possible here, Steve, and kind of get your input on it, because this is something that a lot of my friends have experienced personally and kind of struggle with, where they engage in some level of personal change. So let's say that there's somebody who is, uh, I'm thinking of a specific friend here, yeah. details removed, who's transitioning from being in a kind of conventional, traditional religious structure, and they're starting to move out of that structure into a more kind of broad and open relationship with personal spirituality. So obviously a lot of really loaded stuff going on here. It's a big developmental change. It's creating a lot of destabilization inside of their personal experience. They're not, they're, they're like, am I a bad person because I'm going through this, you know, all of this stuff. But they're experiencing a lot of positive growth as a result of it. They feel better. They're engaged with it. They're committed to this new way of being. Okay. They go back, visit their family over the holidays. Everyone sits around the table, holds hands, says grace, you know, does the whole thing. And they receive a lot of pressure from that structure around how they are losing their way, essentially. Like you are a bad person because you are making this change. How would you talk to that person about integrating their positive growth in the face of this very specific, very personal, very shame-oriented pushback? from their family system. Yeah, how do we deal with uh, shaming from people that we love? Uh, It's a a larger uh, kind of issue there. Totally. You know, love doesn't always mean be with. Sometimes you do have to set limits. Mm. I mean, we can be in abusive relationships. It doesn't mean that we view the person who's the abuser as less than whole and human, but it also means that we will take steps to make sure that our safety is protected, our dignity is protected, our values are protected. And so what would it be like to engage in a genuine conversation? Or what would it be like to withdraw from the group but still maintain an involvement, you know, where the birthday cards still happen, but there are some limits on the visits? Or, yeah, you know, you may have to really do hard, hard things. Mm. Many, many people face that kind of choice. And the issue that I would I would say it's not a simple thing. It's not a formula. But can I can I do a personal story? Please, that, yeah. That tell that links to this sorta. My dad was an alcoholic. My mother had, you know, had, but you know, would be diagnosable as OCD and depressed. Mm. It turned out later, my dad was also very, very anxious and consuming all kinds of anti-anxiety, so-called tranquilizers, etc. Plus drinking, and so no wonder he always looked like he was three sheets to the wind. Yeah. In my little boy brain, when my mother would get upset when dad came home drunk, is she was the problem because he would sometimes play with me. To this day, I smile if I smell juniper berries because it would be sweating Mm. out of his, the gin and tonics from Lubox would be sweated out of his skin. He was a salesman. Mm. He he had a reason to to be at the bar and so forth. Actually, he literally did make sales there, but he also became an alcoholic there. And I kind of made this little boy promised that I would never let anyone do to me like what my mother did to my dad. She was the bad one. Mm -hmm. And when I went to college, I cut her off. I didn't talk to her for five years. And then in my own spiritual journey, Mm. my own journey that leads to act and all of that, I saw it differently. You know, I grew up a little bit and realized. Yeah. And so I had this conversation where I went back to my mom, got in front of her and said, I have to apologize to you because what I did is I thought you killed dad. Mm. You're why he died early. You drove him to an early grave. 
And I'm sorry for that. And I see now that that was my own putting you on the hook in order to avoid how painful it was to watch somebody I love so much gradually destroy himself. Yeah. You know, the mind would say, you can't tell your mother you killed your husband, yeah. your much loved husband. You can't do that. In fact, it changed our relationship so profoundly that, you know, we had a wonderful relationship until the day she died, until I mm. sat there with my hand on her and watched her take her last breath. So I would say to your friend, if you can be true to your own journey, it will give you some hard times here. And maybe there will be an opportunity here for a genuine conversation. Yeah. With you now as an adult, with your own sense of values, your own sense of wholeness, your own view of what it means to be a whole human being as part of that spiritual journey, and to be able to engage in a conversation with those that you love in a way that doesn't ask you to hide who you are or to protect them at the cost of you being true to yourself on the one hand, nor to lord over them. I know you don't want to do that, but maybe maybe that had that conversation could happen now. Or maybe not. Yeah. Maybe there's the space for that. Yeah. Or maybe not. Or maybe you need to draw firmer boundaries around it. That's a, I mean, it's a touching reflection, Steve, for starters. Yeah. It's a beautiful story and a touching reflection. And I think that there's so much that you're saying in there that's true to a lot of people's experience. And are we willing to have a conversation that could be really uncomfortable and really painful? And a lot of the time we avoid, we're very avoidant in our behavior around having that interaction with somebody else. Well, and I can't say this. I want to be careful because the mind may hear it as, and therefore, because you're doing the right thing, it's going to be an easy thing. No, yeah, maybe not. not. Maybe not. not you always, may be disowned. Yeah. You may be thrown <laughs> out of the house. You know, maybe drama may happen, etc. But here, I do want to say this, though, and I'll, I'll say it with the asterisk mm-hmm. to not let your mind do the full thing. I have over and over and over again been shocked at how when you take responsibility for your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own behavior, your own sense of self, your own values, when you see that is within your ability to respond and you communicate in a way that's not judgmental, that's not top-down, that's not condemning, that's not a trick, that's not a manipulation, but that's genuine, over and over again, the human beings around you will step up to that. They'll say, me too. They'll say, oh... I've never, and then they'll say something to you that will shock you about suffering that they've gone through. And maybe even your parents inside this scary thing for them, if they let go of religious pathway, a religious belief that has to have a particular form, Mm -hmm. that they'll lose their children to hell or damnation. I mean, how hard is that? That's a really hard choice. But, you know, when people come out over their sexual identity or when they've talked about their rape experience or over and over again, things have happened like that in human lives where we have that challenge, that choice. And I just can say without with an asterisk, don't let the mind see (laughs) it's going to be sugar soup. I'm over and over again amazed at how at what my mother did. Mm. She looked me in the eye and said, I love you, son. Mm. After I just told her that she killed my father. Yeah but took responsibility for it, that that was my thought, not her behavior. That was my thought. And of course she made some errors. She knows them. She could tell them to me. 
you weren't accusing her. I'm not accusing in that her. conversation of killing her father. You were sharing that you'd had that belief, right? Which now you'd develop some distance from and recognize the harms to her and to yourself of that belief. Yeah. And you were taking responsibility for it as well. That's another word that really stands out. We haven't used it, but with autonomy and so forth is responsibility, responsibility at even an existential level. This is my consciousness. It's not my own actually, but this is the consciousness uh, I'm inhabiting as it were. And yes, and uh, this is my life and I'm responsible for it. All those flexibility processes are autonomous choices. You have to choose to be accepting with your own stuff. Choose to back up from your own mind. Choose to come into the present moment. Choose to connect with this part of you that's bigger than the chatter and the ego and the stories and the fears. And choose what your values are and whether or not to uh, step forward in that way. And so responsibility, the ability to respond, that kind of freedom. Not the irresponsible freedom that we're spreading around the world, but the responsible freedom that we need of taking charge of your own life and creating a life worth living. So when I think about emotions that tend to hijack people or that tend to be involved in suffering, four major classes, you'll recognize them, sadness, shame, anxiety, and anger. Anger strikes me as in many ways the trickiest. The Buddha had a metaphor for it, anger with its honeyed tip and poisoned barb. Because in the moment of anger, it's it's energizing, there's, there's a surge of dopamine, it's rewarding. We feel so righteous about it. So I wonder when you talk about your history, including interest in punk and rock and so forth, were you angry? Was there anger for you as a teen and a young adult? And how'd you grapple? how'd you grapple with that? That was the hardest for me because, you know, my dad and his addiction, Mm -hmm. when he got drunk, yeah, juniper berries make me smile, but they also make me get ready to run. Because if he came home and by six, seven, eight years old, I could read him in about 10 microseconds. Mm -hmm. I would run. I would just run because he was not safe. I remember the thought they are going to kill us. You know, so I was eight going on 38, mm. you know, and I, I never, I will never fully recover from that. I mean, I really, yep. because it meant a whole lot of childhood didn't happen with play and all that. I mean, I was on the lookout. And it also means I have real compassion for people who've had these kind of abusive histories and horrific histories, not because I want to judge and condemn my dad or anything like that, but I just appreciate how hard that can be. And so what I learned, I, I, you know, is that angry expression was dangerous. My mom was a suppressor. Of the two, I'd rather do that. So it's hard for me to sort of walk into anger and just feel it and not act Mm -hmm. on it. Mm -hmm. Right. In that space, there is the wisdom space, isn't it? Yeah. To feel it and then have flexibility in your relationship to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I do find that the flexibility skills really help. Mm -hmm. There is an acceptance piece in there. And there's a gift inside anger. Mm. Anger contains a gift of something that's of importance that's threatened in some way. And maybe it's just ego-based importance. Okay, well, then you've got some work to do on your ego-based attachments. Hmm. Maybe it could be other things. Maybe this really is unfair. Maybe this really is not right. Maybe this really is a values violation. So... All emotions are useful to us. There's not emotion you can name that you don't spend money to produce. 
<laughs> I don't like scary movies. I will say that. <laughs> I don't spend money. Jaws took pushed me out of the ocean for five years. You'd probably ride a roller coaster, though. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would. He would actually. do it. He would do I it. I go yeah, rock climbing. Totally. I go rock climbing. Oh, you go rock climbing. Come on, dude. Okay, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I admit it. Okay, okay, okay. I admit it. I admit it. You got me. <laughs> you know, our mind tells us that only certain emotions are good. And and then yeah. it clings to those, which it turns out we're learning. And this is newer, you'll, as a Buddhist trained yeah. person, anybody would say, yes, that's of course, of course. But it's taken a long while. Initially, I used to say experiential avoidance was only of negative emotions. And then it turns out it's positive. Mm. And now I realize that attachment occurs to positive emotions. And not just that, attachment occurs to negative emotions. Mm -hmm. People are drama queens sometimes. And they just love or wear kings. It's so you know, I, all of it, mm. can we allow our experience to inform our journey in a way that's not wallowing and is also not avoidant, that's not attached and yet is mindful and aware, that takes what's useful, that leaves the rest, but not leaves the rest like an eraser, not like a scissors cutting it out, but leaves the rest like, okay, thank you. That's part of it. Come with me. And now I've got something more important to do. So that's a dance. No matter how much time on the planet you have, you never fully learn it. It's a beautiful summary of the whole conversation, actually. I think, Steve, what you said there. And we only have a little bit more time with you. And if you don't mind staying, I, I do have one final question. In what you're saying, I have a friend who, as I mentioned before, we started talking as a behavior analyst. And I have other friends who are clinicians of various kinds. And they sometimes engage, of course, in ACT practices. And so in a clinical setting, this question could be asked, but also I really mean it more broadly. When people are applying ACT, or maybe even in a larger space, applying these ideas that we're talking about today, are there roadblocks that you commonly see people run into as they're attempting to apply this process in their own life? Are there moments that make them get off the wagon of the process? Are there holes that people fall into? And maybe is there one that you've just seen come up over and over again as that kind of like dark night of the soul as people are doing this? And then how do people get out of it? Well, the single biggest one is huge is, is that once your mind gets onto it and create a rule, then it'll give you a rule that you have to adhere to. You have to grasp at it. You have to, it's true. This is the right way. And then, of course, if you're not living up to whatever that little mental network gives you, then you're a failure, you're not living up to it, you're being a fraud, or you have to even do more to cling, and, you know, so I have to accept it. And, no, that was never the message. That's, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> You've created a monster, Dr. Uh, Hayes. No. <laughs> <laughs> a new rule book for people. <laughs> a new rule book. And when I'm working, you know, in clinical supervision and stuff, all my supervisees uh, will tell you that I actually do say this every once in a while. I'll say, and don't believe this, mm -hmm. you know, because even there, you know, don't let it be the, you know, the flower before your eyes. You know, that, so I had just said, you know, I think having some words for the processes so it can remind you like a little hook in the wall. Yeah. Yeah. But that can also blind you because it can become now a new rule book. And so that's the biggest one. You turn into rigid act people. Mm. And man, I want to run in the other direction when I'm around rigid act people, even myself. You know, <laughs> if I get rigid inside it, I don't like what I'm doing. So 
let's keep coming back to the practices. So that diffusion skill of holding it lightly or pursuing it passionately in the case of values, et cetera, apply that to the analysis too. These are just tools you can use. They're not the one true correct answer. They're nothing to defend. They're just helpful when they're helpful. And if they're not, let go of them. Mm. That's the biggest one that I see over and over again. And I've been blessed with something. If I can mention, we're about to wind down. Yeah, please. You know, people, I'll, I'll say the commercial. If people want to follow me or whatever, go to stephenchays.com. Click on yes, please send it to me. I'll send you my newsletters. I'll send you a little seven-item mini course on ACT. But I also have a, a little self-help group called ACT for the Public. It's in groups IO. It's 10 years old, 2,000 people, just normal folks. That's awesome. Reading ACT books. Yeah. I read every single post. And it's so <laughs> sweet. It's so wonderful. I've grown up with some of these people. Yeah. But this comes up with some frequency on that list when people will realize they got hooked mm. even by the ACT model and the ACT terms and the ACT processes. And when you do, it's no longer what the processes are. You know, looking at my science side, it's not that it violates the model. It's just the model is twisty because we're trying to rein in this evolutionary recent adaptation of language and cognition. It's sitting atop brain processes and behavioral processes that are a thousand times older. I don't know how to just dance act. Mm. I don't know how to just paint act. I talk act. Yeah, that's what we got. And it's same thing with all of the wisdom traditions. Some mystic somewhere had a spiritual experience. And then they came back and they started talking and it had some good effects and it had sometimes horrifically bad effects. Mm. That's the biggest one. And I think the solution to it is diffuse even from that, show up in the present moment, focus on what's important, move your behavior towards that and let life teach you. That's a great answer, a great summary, and I really just appreciate it. I loved what you said really quickly just a few minutes ago. Hold it lightly, but pursue it passionately. Yeah. Beautifully said. And also in reference to what you've created, your own work, your own body of work in your, in your life, your own ability to hold it lightly while pursuing it passionately has really come through in this conversation. Yeah. And I appreciate it. And I want to adapt something that Forrest and I normally do at the end here. And we typically will ask someone, if you could go back in a time machine and talk with yourself when you were a kid at a certain age, what are, what's maybe something you'd want to say from your heart? And I'll just say, it. I'll kind of adapt it from the way we normally do it. I just want to say to you as a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 22-year-old, you are super cool. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Absolutely. If I could go back and meet that crying eight-year-old under the bed, what I'd want to say and actually, probably what I want to do is just hug the little guy. Yeah. He yeah. was doing the absolute best he can. What he's doing there when you're hiding out, when you're 38, is not the good thing to do. When you're eight, it makes sense. And uh, But he'll find a way. And I think we'll find a way. I think as a yeah. culture, we'll find a way. And can I just say that this was awesome? The questions were awesome. Yeah. And, you know, we're fellow travelers. We're trying to put things in the culture that will bump us forward, but not in this grabby way, but in a way that just... Um, you know, takes advantage of the time we got on the planet. And so I really felt honored to be with you here today. Thank you for being with me. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, the creator of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, generally known as ACT.
It was a really very wide-ranging conversation that began with a kind of introduction to ACT. ACT is an approach to therapy that combines acceptance strategies and a kind of mindfulness-based approach to life alongside more traditional behavior change-oriented strategies. One of the goals of ACT is to promote psychological flexibility, or as Steve put it, embracing our vulnerability and turning toward what hurts. We began with acceptance and a pretty common objection to acceptance, which is that if we accept something, that means that we must not be trying to change it. Or alongside that, that acceptance can be a kind of tool to force disadvantaged people to just accept their circumstances. And of course, that's not the goal at all of this approach. The idea is that we can't deny the truth of our world for long and remain psychologically healthy. It's only by first accepting the truth of our experience, whether that be the truth of our personal history, the truth of what's happening to us right now, including things that are really problematic that are happening to us right now, that we can actually enact change in our world. And that's why the pairing with commitment is so essential. We accept what is, and then we commit to the change that we're going to seek to create. And it's in that combination that all of the positive growth is found. I asked Steve about the influence of his contemplative background and how maybe the time when he was growing up could have had an influence on the development of ACT. And he gave a really interesting answer. He didn't want to focus purely on sort of Eastern spiritualist traditions and instead framed it as all of the more holistic approaches had a real influence on the framework of ACT because he thought there was good stuff there, essentially, that could be taken from a variety of different approaches and built into this one framework. The conversation turned toward a particular example that Steve gave about his own relationship with his mother and how that relationship changed over time. He was very open about his own developmental history and the challenges that were present there, and how he had to work with those challenges, including accepting them for what they were, before he was able to heal his relationship with his mother. That kind of cued me into asking about families more broadly, giving a hypothetical case study of somebody who is exploring their spirituality and is going through a phase of spiritual development, but is receiving some pushback from their family system. And one of the things that I found really interesting in what Steve said was his emphasis on the importance of a combination of very healthy boundaries with also giving people the opportunity to impress you saying, hey, maybe this is an opportunity to have a very open conversation with somebody else where you can really reinforce and hold true to your boundaries while also trying to include them in a positive way in your growth process. And to quote Steve, you know, it's not always sugar soup. Just because you make that bid does not mean that people are going to respond positively to it. And there are consequences sometimes to the choices that we make inside of our family system but that doesn't mean that we need to push down our own values. And we can still hold true to what we believe in and redraw the lines of our relationships in a way that works for us. Finally, we closed with a question on some of the pitfalls of people who engage in an ACT approach, clinicians or otherwise. And I thought that Steve's answer here was really interesting coming from the founder of a particular approach to therapy, where he basically said, look, don't get too tied to any one approach. Don't get too tied to any one toolbox. They're just tools. And it's easy for us when we feel like we found a way that works, quote unquote, to get kind of married to that way of doing things. And sometimes you got to mix up your tools. 
He is not attached to act as a framework. He is attached to helping people grow and change in positive ways over time. So it's great to be an act person, but it's also just great to be somebody who is open to learning about the world and using whatever tool happens to be best for the job at hand. So that's all for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. And also maybe please tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways for us to reach new people. Also, as a reminder, I have a new YouTube channel. If you like the podcast, you'll probably like the content that I post there. And if you're more of a visual learner, it might be helpful for you. You can find me at youtube.com slash Forrest Hansen. Finally, if you'd like another way to support the show, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And your support is one of the big reasons that we can keep on doing this work. So once again, thanks for supporting the show. We'll talk to you soon.